You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so uh, like I said, we've got quite a bit to get through. So here's what we're going to do. There's essentially three things I want us to see from uh, these, these short 10 verses. And then we're going to talk about why those, those three things matter, right? And so I think that in these 10 verses, these short verses, that Matthew really gives us uh, uh, essentially three important things. And that is, number one, that this resurrection of Jesus is an historical resurrection, meaning it happens within the scope of human history. Second, that it's a bodily resurrection. And then third, that it is a glorious resurrection. And so we'll talk about each of those briefly and then we'll jump into why that matters. Let's read the first four verses of our text this morning. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now already again in the four seemingly innocuous verses that we've read thus far, Matthew ensures for us that the resurrection of Jesus is firmly placed within human history, right? This is not a vision that Matthew has seen, right? This is not like the book of Revelation where where John is just sitting out on an island and maybe he ate something strange, and now he sees Jesus, right? It's, it's something that happens. It's a historically attested and reported event for us. That's why he notes things like the day of the week, the day after the Sabbath. That's why he notes things like the eyewitnesses that were present, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and the guards that had been set before the tomb to ensure that it wasn't tampered with. And so what happens? Mary Magdalene, other Mary, approach Jesus' tomb, and as they do, the ground shakes, an angel appears. What happens? The guards are literally mortified, right? It says they became like dead men. They were, they were astounded, astonished. Who knows? Maybe they passed out. Maybe it was just, right? But it was just so overwhelming. And so you would expect the women to have the same response, and yet we hear that the angel speaks specifically to them, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we'll find out why he says that in just a second. But he says, I know who you're looking for. I know you're looking for the Jesus that was crucified just a few days prior. Now again, even before getting into sort of the meat of the story, I believe Matthew has put enough in front of us to at least entertain the idea that what's taking place here is historical, worthy of our consideration, that it is being reported for us honestly and accurately. And I'm going to give you four short reasons why I I think that's true for us. Reason number one. If Matthew was trying to make a maximum impact with regards to his audience, a a largely Jewish audience, then he would have had Jesus, he would have fudged some details, 
and, and had Jesus rise on the holy day, the Sabbath, when everybody was resting, when everybody was off work, when everybody was there and available to witness it and to see it, right? No, this is the Jewish Monday, which I don't know about you, but Mondays for me are, I've got to get this done this week, uh, my taxes are due this week, which by the way, they are if you haven't done yours, um, right? But that's, it's their daily concerns. This is just another day. Nothing holy or sacred about it other than the fact that Jesus is here. Second reason, if Matthew were worried about the quality of the testimony, right? The quality of sources, then he, he wouldn't have reported that two women were the first to see this event. Because at the time, right, the testimony of a woman was not even admissible in a court of law. And so you would think that, again, if, if Matthew is trying to present something palatable, palatable to us, something that we should believe, then, again, this is a detail where he probably could have, maybe should have, fudged a little bit. But he doesn't. Third reason, if Matthew were worried about convincing the scientific community, right, then he would have embellished some details of how the resurrection actually happened. What we'll notice in this text is that we don't actually see the resurrection happen, right? Like Jesus shows up later on. The angel appears, right, comes down out of heaven like lightning, white as snow, right, and rolls back the door to the tomb. But he doesn't, he doesn't do that so that Jesus can come out, right? Jesus isn't sitting inside the tomb going, all right, like, it's time, I'm ready. You guys here yet? Yeah, we were just waiting for Mary and other Mary. It's not, it's not what happens. No, the angel appears and he rolls back the door to the tomb in order to let the women in. So the resurrection has already happened. It's already taken place. And yet Matthew, again, feels no need to embellish any kind of details about how that actually took place. Which leads me really to my fourth reason, which is this. In, in all of these, if we could sum all of this up, essentially Matthew is perfectly comfortable with giving as much detail as he has in spite of some large, obvious, unanswered questions that his narrative fails to answer. And so I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is that if Matthew was trying to trick us, he's doing a really bad job. And so what I believe, and what, what, I, what I believe is true in this account, is that Matthew is being entirely honest with what he knows. As stupefying as it may seem, as incredible as this credible event may be, He's willing to recount what he has, not embellish what he doesn't. And so it's important that we recognize this resurrection, not only as claimed by Matthew, but also as all followers of Jesus, including Paul, who says, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we are the most to be pitied, that this is an historical event that is historically attested to by historical persons. All right. 
So it's an historical resurrection. But it's also a bodily resurrection. This is what verses 6 and 7 say. The angel says, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus. In verse 6, he is not here. Jesus is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so Matthew not only contends for a historical resurrection, he also contends for a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection of Jesus, right? Now here's the thing, none of us are really too uncomfortable about the idea that the tomb may or may not have been empty, right? There are many rational ways that we could explain that. But before I, before I try to give you more what I believe are good reasons to at least consider that this is real and true and glorious. Let me just say this. There is no amount of rationalizing that I or you can do that will negate the necessity of faith. That to follow Jesus, to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus necessitates faith. So listen, I'm not going to erase every hint of doubt that you ever had this morning. And if I were to tell you otherwise, I would be dishonest. It is by grace through faith that we've been saved, not of works so that none can boast, as the Apostle Paul says. But I do love that in this moment, essentially, what the angel invites the Marys to do is essentially to investigate. Right? What does he do? He invites them to use their senses to make sense of what's going to come and see where he lay. Let's put it like this. The angel doesn't say these things. Here's what the angel doesn't say. Uh, the stone may be rolled away, but you don't need to go in there and check. Just take it on faith. Jesus isn't here. He invites them to use their senses to make sense of what's going on. The angel also doesn't say, there's no need to look in here or anywhere for Jesus because he's now spiritually raised. Look for him in your hearts. Look for him anywhere and everywhere in nature. Check for the resurrected love of Jesus under the shrub. Or when you rub the happy belly of your canine, then you have touched the happy heart of the Lord. He is here and everywhere. He doesn't say that. And so what we begin to understand is that there's a bodily resurrection that has taken place. You see it even in just what he says about Jesus and where he is. He says this is where he was. He did lay here. His body was here, but now it is not here, meaning it is somewhere else. In fact, he goes before you to Galilee, and when you get there, you will see him. Right? Not you'll feel him, you'll dream him, right? You'll see him. And we see the bodily resurrection affirmed by Matthew again in verse 9 when it tells us that when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary beheld Jesus, 
that they grabbed his feet, that his feet were real, tangible feet, that they were there, that they touched his feet, and that they worshipped him. And so when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, this is not uh, a vision, a floating spirit, a mirage, a bad trip. He's embodied. It's a bodily resurrection. And so Matthew has put before us a historical resurrection, a bodily resurrection. But over and above both of those things, Matthew puts before us what I believe is a glorious resurrection. Because you'll note that Jesus isn't the only one that's raised from the dead in the history of humanity, right? It, just a few short days ago, in fact, maybe a couple weeks, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. So what is it that makes Jesus' resurrection glorious? The first reason that I think it's, it's glorious is, is, is this reason. The historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is glorious because it means that all of Jesus' words, his teachings, his warnings, and most amazingly, his promises, are all true. They're all true. And so that means that he was and he is and he always will be the very son of God. It means that when he took that mantle upon himself on Palm Sunday by riding on the colt of a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden, that when he rode into the city claiming to be king, that it was true. That when he linked himself to the prophecies of Zechariah 9 and Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 53 and every other dot and iota of of scriptural writing, that he is the promised one and that he came and that he's done something on our behalf. I, I love what an old theologian says uh, by the name of Gunther Borncombe. He says this, Easter is above all else God's acknowledgement or in religious terms, God's confession of Jesus whom the world refused to acknowledge and to whom even the disciples were unfaithful. So here's the thing. Everybody upon Jesus' death said, I guess he's not who he says he is. In the resurrection, God says, he is who he says he is. God is vindicating Jesus' testimony, confessing Jesus' glory, and graciously now, 2,000 years later, through the, through the recording of Matthew and the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, now graciously revealing that to us. That he's God, that he's the King of kings, that he's the Lord of lords. That's why in this moment there is no ambiguity, right? What happens? Tells us that they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Incredible. There's no ambiguity as to what's taking place for Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. He is who he says he is. So they grab his feet and they worship him. So, Matthew puts before us an historical, bodily, and glorious resurrection. Why does that matter? There's a thousand reasons that it matters. In fact, that's most of what the life of Sojourn is devoted to, both here on Sundays and in our neighborhood parish gatherings and throughout the week, is figuring out if Jesus is this, if this is what he's done, if this is who he says he is, then what does that mean for me? It reverberates throughout all of our lives, both corporately and individually, in ways that we don't even yet understand. But I'm going to give us three It matters that it's historical because it means that God cares about us and that he has a plan. I think that's one of the main questions that I get all the time. If God is so high and mighty, if he's got this universe to rule and to care for and to look over, then why would he care about my tiny, minuscule, atomic speck, right, in the grand scheme of the universe? Jesus coming, stepping into human history means that human history is intrinsically part of his plan. He doesn't stand outside of it. He doesn't look upon it apathetically. He didn't just create it and then go, okay, you guys figure it out. It's the exact opposite. Through Jesus' historical resurrection, we have confidence that this history, that's what's ha- that what's happening in the world today has purpose, meaning, value, and that God and the promises that he's given to us of a new place and a new people and a new creation are in fact being journeyed toward. It's a new humanity that dawned that first Sunday. And it's the humanity that we all want, diverse yet equal, peaceful and just. And so human history is God's history. And he's forging a new people that will glorify him in it. Second, it matters that it's a bodily resurrection because it's the reversal of the curse. Through Jesus' bodily resurrection, we get a foretaste of the resurrection that we experience when we place our faith in him. Not only in that moment, when the bonds of sin are broken, when we are released from our captivity, but also that resurrection that is to come, when we will be made like him. You see, In Jesus, things are for us as they are for him in this moment. 
The entire order of things has changed. The tomb devours death and not the dead. And the house of death has become the mansion of life. It is through death that we are transported into eternal life, into the life that is truly life in the presence of God Himself. And so through the bodily resurrection of Jesus, we come to understand that we have not come, He has not come to us to turn us into spirits, but He's come to redeem what ails us now, both in our physical unhealth and in our spiritual unhealth and in our emotional unhealth and in our mental unhealth, that everything will be redeemed. That as Revelation says, there will be no tears anymore, there will be no sickness anymore, that He has come to redeem our very bodies. So both what ails us now our sin, and what we were incapable of escaping, our death. Both of those are shattered by a bodily resurrection of this perfect, sinless, holy Savior. What was broken by our forefathers in the Garden of Eden is made new in Jesus. And then finally, it matters that Jesus' resurrection is glorious, because it is an announcement of not only a new king, but a new kingdom. Anytime there's a transfer of power, there's always anxiety, right? Anytime. The one we just witnessed was maybe one of the more anxiety-producing ones. Because we just don't know, right? They may have said this and this and this, but is it really going to be like that? In this glorious resurrection of Jesus, we come to, yes, know that power has transferred indeed. There is a king who is among us. And he is a king to whom all other kings will bow. So he is the king of kings. He's the ruler of the universe. He oversees it all. There is no higher court than his court. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. Which is terrifying. But that reality gets tempered with the fact that he's also a man. And he's not just any man, he's a humble man. He's the highest in the courts of heaven, but he is the lowliest servant on the earth. And so yes, he's king and he's glorious and he's mighty, but he's a certain kind of king. He's humble and he's meek. Just like we saw last week. I mean, just for a minute, just take two seconds and think about Jesus' first words after his resurrection. Is it, Behold, I am here. See me in all mine glory. No. He sees Mary, and he sees Mary Magdalene, and he says, Hi. Let's get technical with the Greek. He says, Hi. That's the translation, right? We put it in greetings here, maybe because it feels a little more ceremonious, but it's essentially in our modern colloquial English, hi. Uh, excuse me, you just rose from the dead. You're the Lord of the universe, and all you've got to say is hi? Yeah, 
That's the kind of king he is. Greetings. Hi. Oh, 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 pardon me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That that's the kind of king Jesus is. That he is powerful enough to secure forgiveness, powerful enough to make redemption of all of history, but he's also humble enough to offer it to us freely. Humble enough to take our minuscule worship, grabbing of the feet, weeping, and say, Don't fear. It's okay. And so what that means this morning is that it doesn't matter who you've been or even who you are right in this moment right now. Through the glorious resurrection of Jesus, we see that he is powerful enough to grant forgiveness and redemption. He is the supreme court of the universe, a court of one. But he's also humble enough to offer that forgiveness, to offer that redemption to you freely and without price. This is what makes John 3.16 such a wonderful verse. That one that we've all heard ad nauseum. Even if we're not Christians in the room, we know that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. There is no threshold that we have to cross other than the threshold of belief. And he offers you the opportunity to do that this morning. He is risen. Let's try it again. He is risen. risen Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, again, just to be gathered together in the glory, the shadow of the glory of this resurrection. Lord, this foretaste that we have here. Or thank you that you communicate to us in ways that we can understand in our feeble minds. Lord, that you would step into human history, that you would step into human history in a human body, and that you would subject yourself to death, but then be raised in glorious resurrection, glorious victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. And I pray, Lord, this morning that that historical bodily glorious resurrection would be a treasure to us. Lord, if we are Christians in the room, may we never graduate from this simple truth, this simple reality that there was a man dead in a tomb and now there is not. And that that means something. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are not Christians. I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious and saving. Lord, we know that there is nothing that we can do. There's no lights fancy enough. There's no songs well sung enough. There's no preacher gifted enough. But Lord, there is a gospel powerful enough to bring dead things to life. So we ask that by your spirit, you would do that. And Lord, I pray against any shame or guilt in the room because Lord, you are high and holy, but you have made yourself meek and lowly so that we might know you. And Lord, if there is any pride or arrogance in the room, 
I pray that you would remind us that, yes, you are meek and lowly, but you are also the risen and victorious Savior who now sits enthroned in the heavens and who will rule in judgment over all of creation. And to those who experience his fellowship, he will grant forgiveness. And not only forgiveness, but cleansing through his blood and by his body. And so we come to the table this morning, Lord, with hearts rejoicing in the good gift that you have given us in your son and his glorious and victorious resurrection. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.